0: section eighteen of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter fifty four trades unions part three the civil laws which dealt so harshly for a long time with trades unionism dealt unfairly too with the friendly societies with that strong and sudden growth of our modern days Cooperation. We call it the growth of our modern days because, although there has been a principle of cooperation in some form or other working in a more or less experimental and darkened way all through the history of civilization, yet the shape it has assumed of recent days is strictly a growth of modern conditions. If working men can combine effectively and in large numbers for a benefit society or for a strike, why should they not also cooperate for the purpose of supplying each other with good and cheap food and clothing and dividing among themselves the profits which would otherwise be distributed among various manufacturers and shopkeepers? This is a question which has often been put before without any very decided practical result coming of it but in eighteen forty four or thereabouts it was put and tested in a highly practical manner by some working men in the north of england north and south of england seem to be marked up by the same differences as those which distinguish north and south in most other places the north has more of the vigorous and practical intelligence the south more of the poetic and artistic feeling from the sturdy north of england have always come the great political and industrial movements which specially contributed to make england what we now know her to be in the north the co-operative movement first sprang into existence the association called the equitable pioneers co-operative store was founded in rochdale by a few poor flannel weavers the times were bad there had been a failure of a savings bank involving heavy losses to many classes and these men cast about in their minds for some way of making their little earnings go far. Most of them were, or rather had been, followers of Robert Owen, who, if he taught men to think wrongly on many subjects, taught them at least to think. These Rochdale weavers were thoughtful men, probably of the class who might have figured in the pages of Alton Locke. One decidedly good teaching which they had from Robert Owen was a dislike to the credit system. They saw that the shopkeeper who gave his goods at long credit must necessarily have to charge a much higher price than the actual value of the goods, and even of a reasonable profit, in order to make up for his having to lie out his money and to secure himself against bad debts. They also saw that the credit system leads to almost incessant litigation, and besides that litigation means the waste of time and money. Some of them, it appears, had a conscientious objection to the taking of an oath. It occurred to these Rochdale weavers, therefore, that if they could get together a little capital, they might start a shop or store of their own, and thus be able to supply themselves with better goods and at cheaper rates than by dealing with the ordinary tradesmen. Twenty-eight of them began by subscribing tuppence a week each the number of subscribers was afterwards increased to forty, and the weekly subscription to threepence. When they had got twenty-eight pounds, they thought they had capital enough to begin their enterprise with. They took a shop in a little back street called Toad Lane. The name might seem a repulsive one, and perhaps ill-omened, unless indeed its omen were to be held encouraging on the theory of the toad bearing the precious jewel in his head but it has to be said that toad lane was only the lancashire corruption of the old lane the old soon changing itself into to old in a manner familiar to all who know lancashire and to old, becoming toad by easy and rapid transmutation. after the shop had been fitted up the equitable pioneers had only fourteen pounds left to stock it and the concern looked so small and shabby that the hearts of some of the pioneers might have well-nigh sunk within them a neighbouring shopkeeper feeling utter contempt for the whole enterprise declared that he could remove the whole stock in trade in a wheelbarrow the wheelbarrow load of goods soon however became too heavy to be carried away in the hold of a great steamer the pioneers began by supplying each other with groceries they went on to butcher's meat and then to all sorts of clothing from supplying goods they progressed on to the manufacturing of goods They had a corn mill and a cotton mill, and they became, to a certain extent, a land and building society. They set aside parts of their profits for a library and reading room, and they founded a cooperative Turkish bath. Their capital of 28 pounds swelled in 16 years to over 120,000 pounds. Cash payments and the division of profits were the main source of this remarkable prosperity. Much of their success in the beginning was due to the fact that they supplied good articles, and that those who bought could always rely on carrying home real value for their money. But the magic of the principle of division of profits worked wonders for them. Not merely did the shareholders share in the profits, but all the buyers received an equitable percentage on the price of every article they bought. Each purchaser, on paying for what he bought, received a ticket which entitled him to that percentage at each division of profit and thus many a poor man found at the quarterly division that he had several shillings perhaps a pound coming to him which seemed at first to have dropped out of the clouds so little direct claim did he appear to have on it he had not paid more for his goods than he would have had to pay at the cheapest shop he had got them of the best quality the price could buy and at the end of each period he found that he had a sum of money standing to his credit which he could either take away or leave to accumulate at the store many other institutions were soon following the example of the Rochdale pioneers long before their capital had swelled to the amount we have mentioned the north of england was studded with cooperative associations of one kind or another one of the very earliest founded was the leeds corn mill there were working men's associations as well as cooperative stores in the working associations the workers were the capitalists they receive the regular rate of wages and they also receive a dividend on their profits we need not enter into further detail as to the progress of these institutions many of them proved sad failures some started on chimerical principles Some were stupidly, some selfishly mismanaged. There came seasons of heavy strain on labor and trade, when the resources of many were taxed to their uttermost, and when some even of the best seemed for a moment likely to go under. The cooperative associations suffered, in fact, the trials and vicissitudes that must be met by all institutions of men. But the one result is clear and palpable they have, as a whole, been a most remarkable success. Of late years the principle has been taken up by classes who would have appeared at one time to have little in common with the poor flannel weavers of Rochdale. The civil servants of the crown first adopted the idea, and now in some of the most fashionable quarters of London the carriages of some of their most fashionable residents are seen at the crowded doors of the cooperative store however the cooperative principle may develop it may safely be predicted that posterity will not let it die it has taken firm hold of our modern society no one now any longer dreams as some of its more enthusiastic founders once did that it is destined to prove a regenerator of mankind that it is to extinguish competition and the selfishness which keeps competition up it is in its present stage nothing but competition in a new form the co-operative store competes with the ordinary tradesman who winces very keenly at the competition and calls for even the intervention of parliament to save him from at least one class of the competitors but even very sanguine reformers do not often now ask that their one idea shall supersede every other and most of the promoters of the co-operative system are well satisfied that it takes so conspicuous a place among established institutions. It seems certainly destined to develop rather than fade, to absorb rather than to be absorbed. The law was much against the principle in the beginning. Before 1852, all cooperative associations had to come under the Friendly Societies Act, which prohibited their dealing with any but their own members an act obtained in eighteen fifty two allowed them to sell to persons not members of their body for many years they were not permitted to hold more than an acre of land more lately this absurd restriction was abolished and they were allowed to trade in land to hold land to any extent and to act as building societies the friendly societies which were in their origin merely working men's clubs have been the subject of legislation since the later years of the last century. It may be doubted whether, even up to this day, that legislation has not done them more harm than good. The law neither takes them fairly under its protection and control, nor leaves them to do the best they can for themselves uncontrolled and on their own responsibility. At one time, the sort of left-handed recognition which the law gave them had a direct tendency to do harm. An officer was appointed by the government who might inspect the manner in which the accounts of the societies were kept and certify that they were in conformity with the law, but he had no authority to look actually into the affairs of a society. His business was, in fact, nothing more than to certify that the legal conditions had been fully complied with, thus implying that on the face of things the accounts seemed all right. The mere fact, however, that there was any manner of government certificate proved sadly misleading to thousands of persons. Some actually regarded the certificate as a guarantee given by the government that their money was safe, a guarantee which bound the state to make good any loss to the depositors. Others, who were not quite so credulous, were convinced at least that the certificate testified on government authority that the funds of the society were safe, and that its accounts and its business were managed on principles of strict economical soundness. The government officials certified nothing of the kind. A man at the head of a large establishment brings to some accountant the books of his household expenses. The accountant examines them and says, all these figures add up quite correctly. The accounts seem to be kept on the proper principle." if all these goods were got which i see put down here and if all these payments were made then your accounts are in safe condition but the accountant does not know whether the cook and the butler and the grooms got all the articles put down in the books or whether the articles were all required or whether they were paid for as stated for all the accountant knows or professes to know the owner of the house may be swindled by every servant and every tradesman. His affairs may be managed for him on some such principle as that of the house in which Jules Blas was once a servant, and where from the steward down the whole body of domestics and of tradespeople were in a conspiracy to cheat the unhappy proprietor. The certificate given to the friendly societies was of no greater value than this. Many of the societies were sadly mismanaged. In certain of them there was the grossest malversation of funds. In some towns much distress was caused among the depositors in consequence. The societies had to pass, in fact, through a stage of confusion, ignorance, and experiment. And it is perhaps only to be wondered at that there was not greater mismanagement, greater blundering, and more lamentable failure it is not by any means certain that during these earlier stages of the growth of such institutions the interference and even the protection of government would have done them much good but the indirect control which the government for a long time undertook had apparently no other effect than to interpose restriction just where restriction was injurious and to give a semblance of protection which was only calculated to create a false security in the minds of ignorant people and to lead to delusion and disappointment the government cannot be charged of late years with any want of active interest in the business of life among the poor its protecting directing hand is almost everywhere sometimes the help thus given is judicious and valuable for example the post office savings banks have become most popular institutions and no one can doubt that they have tended to develop habits of prudence and economy among the poorer classes all over the country one of the most curious phenomena of these later times is the reaction that has apparently taken place toward that system of paternal government which macaulay detested and which not long ago the manchester school seemed in good hopes of being able to supersede by the virtue of individual action private enterprise voluntary benevolence we shall still have to describe some much more remarkable illustrations of this reaction than any that have yet been given keeping for the present to trades organizations we would direct attention to the fact that whereas in old days the government said you shall do nothing to help yourselves without our control and we will do nothing for you but to persecute you as often as possible the tendency now is to say you may do everything you like for yourselves but you must allow us to enter into a benevolent rivalry with you and insist upon doing all we can for you in our way at the same time whatever the defects or the possible dangers of such a principle if pushed too far it is at least not likely to engender artisan conspiracy to give excuse for secret association to help men like Broadhead into the position of leaders and despots, to furnish weak minds with an excuse for following the instigations of the fire-raiser and the assassin. All that law has done lately to remove restrictions from the organization of labor, if we may once more employ that pompous but expressive phase, has been well done. We must not hasten to anticipate ill from the almost equally rapid movement of the tendency to help labour in doing labour's own proper work. End of Section 18